0: listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first text comes from Exodus chapter 34. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Our next reading comes from Luke chapter 9. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up the three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at the time what they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Morning, church. When I was preparing this text, I was reminded of a few years back I was in Japan, and we were helping help to host a conference for pastors throughout Asia, and uh, when we were preparing for that trip, we learned Japan is actually the largest unreached people group in the world, so 99.7% of Japanese people don't know what Christianity is, couldn't tell you the basic tenets of the faith, and one day when we were on that trip, we were doing some coffee shop evangelism, there were some local college students who wanted to practice conversational English, and so we were chatting with them, and I asked one of these students, hey, do you know who Jesus is? and he replied back, no, who's that? And I realized when he replied, like, oh, you think this is somebody who's going to come into the coffee shop within the next five minutes? I've set this up in not a helpful way for you, which got me thinking, how do you explain to somebody who has no category who Jesus is? Do you start with the fully God part or the fully man part? I'm sure we could cobble together a really orthodox, robust definition. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were made and for him. He was the Word who was with God and is God, right? In him, all things hold together. He's the splendor of God's glory. And all that would be true, and we would have kind of a Christianese word salad at the end of it. How do we make sense of who Jesus is? Maybe you've felt this before if you've ever had a child ask you a deep theological question What happens when we die? Oh, yeah, that's a, let me call some people, and I'll get back to you on that. If, what's driving our text this morning is this question of who is Jesus? Because what's happening in the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 9 is he is begin, beginning to become popular. So he's commissioned out his 12 apostles, his sent ones. They're performing miracles. He's just fed the 5,000, and we get a couple interludes in which people are asking, who is this? Herod, the ruler of the region, is pictured saying, is this Elijah, the Old Testament prophet? Is this John the Baptist, back from the dead? We see the crowds saying, surely this is Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. And it's in that place that Jesus pulls aside his disciples for a private moment of prayer, and he asks them, who do you say that I am? To which Peter replies, well, you are the Messiah, the Savior which is correct. But actually, the Greek word he uses here is he says, you are the Christ. And we know Christ is not a last name, right? Christ is a title that means anointed one, one who's been set apart. And if we're thinking in a first century Jewish imagination, if somebody is thinking about an anointed one, a Christ, the first thing that would come to their mind is this role of the high priest. The one who, on behalf of the people of God, the nation of Israel, would intercede, would be a mediator, and would go into the temple offering atoning sacrifices on their behalf that there might be peace between God and his people. So Peter rightly confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has come to save us. And Jesus replies back to him, and he says, yes, and this is the first time that Jesus explicitly tells his disciples in Luke's gospel, and I will be delivered up to be crucified. Then that's their response. They don't know what to make of it. And not only that, he tells them, if you want to come after me, you too must take up your cross and follow me. And the disciples don't have a category for what Jesus is putting before them. He's at the one hand confirming, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one, the one who God has sent in order to make mediation for your sin, and yet I am going to die. I'm not going to rule in power like you were expecting, I'm going to lay down my life. And it leaves the disciples in this place of, okay, so in a sense we know who Jesus is, he's the Christ, but in another sense, what does that mean for him to be the Christ? And all of this sets the stage for our text today, which is the transfiguration, so we'll be in Luke chapter 9 if you want to turn there. There's a little bit of a narrative break here that Luke offers us. Starting in verse 28, he says, About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. So the first thing I want us to see in this text is that it begins with Jesus withdrawing for prayer. Prayer sustains the ministry of Jesus, and Luke is intentional in showing us this detail, not just that Jesus is consistent in his prayer life, which ought to be instructive for us if Jesus needs to draw away for prayer, then certainly we do too, but Jesus is bringing his disciples along with him as he prays. He views it as a teaching opportunity. And this is true for the whole of the ministry of Jesus. I think that we can think of prayer as a private, withdrawn, intimate activity. For Jesus, it's an opportunity for him to show others, hey, this is what it looks like for you to have fellowship with God, for you to come into God's presence. And he's instructing them because he wants us to live a similar shaped life. He wants us to draw into God's presence in prayer. And further than that, he's drawing up onto a mountaintop. And what's going on in Luke chapter 9 maps directly onto Exodus chapter 34. We are meant to see Jesus as a new type of Moses, one who is ascending the mountain in order to meet with God so that he can then instruct his people. And so in 929, the text reads, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. What's going on in this moment is as Moses drew up on the top of the mountain in order to meet with God, what we could call a high place, or as I heard Tish Harrison Warren say it once, a thin place, this place where heaven and earth are meeting. There's an expectation that the glory of God could break through at any moment, and maybe you've experienced a thin place in your life. Maybe it's a spot in nature where you feel especially close to God, or maybe it's a moment in time at which Jesus' presence became real to you. So what we see is at this high place, at this mountaintop where heaven and earth are colliding, Jesus experiences what we call the transfiguration. He begins to be illuminated. And this radiance that is emanating from Jesus is a way in which God's presence is communicated into our world. When the biblical author's convey that God is present in a place, they convey it through blinding brilliance. You can think of occasions like the burning bush, or whenever an angelic being is in a place, often they're depicted as having clothes that are dazzlingly white. More pertinent for our text today, when Moses met with God, he came down the mountain glowing, which sounds a little odd. There's a joke somewhere here to be made about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I won't make it, but... Moses, literally in drawing near to God, comes away shining. And this can feel a little odd until we start to think about the language of the Old Testament. Maybe it's not as odd as we tend to think. We actually use this language in our weekly benediction. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace. This idea that coming into the presence of God, having fellowship with God, illumines the people who experience it. And when Moses is coming down, he's shining because he's drawn near to God. But the thing that is especially interesting to us about this scene with Jesus in verse 29 is he is not appearing before God. He is God. He's not reflecting back the glory of the Father who he's meeting with. The Father's going to come in in a few more verses. Jesus himself serves as the source of God's light. This is a revelation of who he is, true God. His glory is being revealed in this moment. And further, what we see is Jesus is alongside Moses and Elijah. And there's a couple things that are happening in this moment. One of them is we're getting kind of a negative definition of who Jesus is. What I mean is there have been all these people asking, who is Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is he Moses? Is he a prophet? And Jesus is here standing with Elijah and Moses. So the first thing we see is, well, I guess he's not either one of these guys. It would be like if you saw Batman and Bruce Wayne side by side. It's like, oh, I guess he's not Bruce Wayne after all. We're confirming who he's not. But further than that, we're confirming who he is because Moses and Elijah, they played a specific role in the thought life of the Jewish people as it concerned this coming event called the Day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord was the looked forward to day upon which God would send his appointed servant to usher in the end of all things, renewing all of creation. And in Malachi chapter 4, it talks about, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And Jesus draws upon this in his preaching ministry. He points to John the Baptist as a type of Elijah, a figure crying out in the wilderness, make way for the Lord. So what we're seeing as Jesus stands on the mountaintop, God's own radiance illuminating out from him, he's been confirmed as a Christ, standing alongside two people who are saying, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is a climax of the gospel." It's revealing to us Jesus is the one we've been waiting on. And to make it even clearer, what the conversation is that Jesus is having with these two men is about his departure, is how the text says it. His departure, actually, in the Greek, literally is translating the word exodus. So we have Jesus standing here with Moses, and they are talking about his exodus that is going to be accomplished in Jerusalem well, what kind of exodus is Jesus leading in Jerusalem? We know why he's going to go there. He's just shared it with his disciples it's so he can be killed and be raised in accordance with the scriptures. What they're putting forward is, as Moses led a people out of slavery in Egypt, so Jesus will lead a people out of slavery in their bondage to sin. That they might not enter a temporary promised land, but instead that they would become the people of God who will dwell with him forever in the kingdom that he is bringing to this earth. This is the image of Jesus that we get where heaven and earth are colliding. And in all of this, it's kind of like Luke's gospel. The camera pans over to the side. We've experienced all this glory. And then how are the disciples described? They're asleep. They're sleeping in the middle of one of the most glorious revelations of all time, which kind of begs the question, why does Luke include this detail? This is a motif throughout Luke's gospel, sleepy disciples. There are multiple moments where, truly, multiple moments where the disciples are falling asleep in the midst of Jesus revealing his true nature as God. You can think of another one as the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He is asking his disciples to stay up in prayer with him, and they can't stay awake. Luke is including this detail because I want you to think about the original audience that Luke is writing to. So you've got a bunch of people who are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. You've got the apostle, who he's, apostles who he has commissioned out. And these people, they start the church, they found it, they're spreading it. There's excitement, there's anticipation. Jesus will return from his ascended throne. And then one year goes by. And two years go by. And ten years go by. Twenty years go by. And the church has experienced internal conflict. And they're experiencing persecution from outside. And they're wondering, is Jesus actually going to come back? Luke is including this detail because he wants us to see if the disciples who were on the mountain with Jesus could be missing it, so can we. If they were in danger of falling asleep while they were in physical proximity to him, surely we can be in danger of falling asleep too. He's asking us to wake up. Wake up, be attentive to what has happened in Jesus' transfigured glory. And so with all that, we get Peter's response. In 9.33, it says, As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke very helpfully adds, he didn't know what he was saying. Which is not how you want to be described by an author of the Bible. What is so bad about what Peter is putting forward here? It feels like it's innocuous, It feels like it's not that far off. What Peter has is a right impulse. He recognizes, he snaps awake and he sees, oh wow, something significant is happening here and we need to remember this moment. And what it feels like to me in this moment is almost like if you've ever been to a concert where you've got thousands of people with their phones out watching the concert through a recording that they will never watch again. A tiny grainy two inch image of a show There's an impulse in us when we are witnessing something important, something that we love, that we're like, I want to hold on to this. But in trying to hold on to it, sometimes we actually miss the significance of what's going on. So Peter, in this moment, he has three small signs of a big misunderstanding of what has happened before him. The first is that he's suggesting creating tents, these physical structures, or we could translate these as tabernacles, So little houses that are commemorating God's presence was here. And again, it's a right impulse, but the issue is that the entire shape of Luke's gospel is against confining God's presence to one single space. His impetus is towards the coming of the acts of the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that the temple will no longer be the dwelling place of God, but instead his church, as it is scattered, will be the means by which God mediates his presence to the entire world. So Peter's impulse to say, let's pick this spot as a spot of remembrance, misses the point. The point is that he would be transformed in coming down the mountain, not that he would stay on top of it. It's the first thing Peter is missing. The second thing Peter is missing is there's an implied equality in the three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And what we have just seen in Jesus's transfigured glory is that he is clearly not the same as these two other prophets. He transcends beyond them. He is true God of true God. The third thing that we see, it's a little bit subtle, is Peter refers to Jesus as master. And apparently this title is woefully inadequate for what Peter has just seen. So we have three kids, six-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old. And our two-year-old, Pierce, has developed this habit lately that is equal parts infuriating and hilarious where he has learned that he is supposed to say Mr. when he's communicating respect. It's like, okay, say hi to Mr. Jeff. Hi, Mr. Jeff. And he started taking this to other places where it doesn't quite work. So he'll say, all right, Mr. Dad. Like, okay. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, okay, Mr. Mom. It's like, well, no, that's, you're just getting yourself in trouble now. And then the other day, I caught him saying to our cat, all right, Mr. Earl. It's like, okay, you don't understand how this title works. But what's going on in this moment of the text is Peter's kind of backtracking. Just a moment ago, he confessed Jesus as the Christ, and in the aftermath of seeing Jesus' transfigured glory, it's like he's downgrading what has happened. A master relationship. This man is far more than just an earthly master, an earthly boss or overseer. He is the image of the invisible God. So if it's not wrong, it's inadequate. And to confirm this, what happens is God the Father intervenes on the scene. So verse 34, it says, While he was speaking, meaning he interrupts Peter's speech, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So the first thing I want you to see in God the Father's presence descending on this scene is that the disciples' immediate response is fear. And this is the normative response of people when they come into the presence of God throughout the Bible. You can think about Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah, where he's in the presence of the Lord and he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When sinful, mortal, profane creatures come into the presence of an infinite holy God, they are rightly humbled. And so this cloud descends, the same kind of cloud that met with Moses, and the disciples are humbled. But what ought to be telling for this moment in the story is they did not have a similar response to seeing Jesus' transfigured glory. It was just business as usual with Jesus, showing they do not yet understand that Jesus is, in fact, true God. Now, this will change for the disciples because when they see him after the resurrection, they will respond in fear. They will understand, oh, this is truly God. But in this moment, they haven't yet figured it out. And what God is doing as he interrupts Peter is he's setting the record straight. He's trying to say, the titles you're suggesting, the activity of commemoration you're suggesting, they are insufficient. This is my beloved son. He is truly God. Listen to him. Listen to him. God's parting words in the scene are Listen to him, because he is clarifying the confusion that the disciples still feel in the aftermath of hearing the anointed one, the Christ, will be delivered over to death and so will you. He's saying, listen to him, even though this teaching is hard, because he has all authority on heaven, he is my son. As a quick moment, I want to chase a rabbit trail here. One thing that struck me in thinking about this part of the text is you've got a typological significance, sorry, big word, between Moses and Jesus. They're ascending onto the mountaintop to receive instruction from God. And as they are ascending onto the mountain, each of them have this moment in which they are illuminated. They become radiant. And I was thinking about Moses comes down from the mountain carrying tablets of stone. He has inscribed on these tablets the commandments of God. Yet what the people fear, what they respond to, is seeing his transfigured face, that he's glowing in the aftermath of meeting with God the Father. What the disciples ought to respond to is seeing Jesus' transfigured face. And I've been thinking about this because I hope that anyone who presumes to teach the church will spend time seeking God, that they might come out with tablets of stone, commandments on which that we would be instructed. But I hope for anyone, and I say this with all humility, recognizing I'm preaching to you right now, I hope anyone presuming to teach God's people the thing that will be fearsome or winsome about their ministry wouldn't just be the tablets of stone they carry, but that they would be illumined by God's presence. And I say that especially in an age of Christian information overload, where there are podcasts and sermons more than you could ever consume. I wonder, do we want the thing about those teaching us, preaching to us, leading us to be the tablets of stone or will it be that they have drawn into the very presence of God? That they have come face to face with him. And I bet you know people like this. I think about a mentor of mine, John Hawkins. There's something palpable, he hasn't glowed in front of me, but there's something palpable about him that I can tell you have spent time with the Lord. There is something that is rubbed off on you, May we aspire to that. May we long for that as we follow people. So that's our mountaintop moment. Jesus' glory is revealed and the disciples miss it. And Luke is communicating this to us as a warning. You can be standing on the mountain and miss it. You can behold Jesus and not be appropriately changed, which begs the question, what response would have been appropriate in this scene? What would we have expected from them? And I think the big thing here is Jesus's ministry, he does periodically retreat to these thin places. He does periodically withdraw to the mountain, but his ministry is conducted in the valley, and whatever's going on in the transfiguration must equip us before our life lived in the valley. We need transformation that follows us down the mountain. We need to be changed in a way unlike what Peter was suggesting, fixed at a moment in time, a place in space, and instead be changed in a way that will go with us. And so I say this to a bunch of people in this room who I imagine many of you have had experiences in your life like the transfiguration. Now, I don't know that Jesus' glory was illumined to you, but what I mean when I say that is there is a moment in your life that you can look back at and say, this is a time where God made his glory real to me, where I became convinced that I want to follow him. And I wonder, how can the transfiguration be instructive for us not to leave that as a past tense moment, but instead to carry it forward into our lives? And so I want to offer up three ways in which I hope beholding Jesus will equip us For life in the valley. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. One way I hope that beholding Jesus will equip us for life in the valley is it ought to prompt in us a response of obedience. When God the Father descends on the scene and his parting instruction is listen to him, his primary concern is that we would see Jesus is not just a contemporary with Elijah and Moses, but instead that the teaching that he is delivering. That we're to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to turn the other cheek. We're to be generous with others. We're to care for the poor. These are commandments that we are called to follow. And it's not enough to just give him a perfunctory master. We must view him as God and therefore obey him. The transfiguration, the glory of God is meant to make us see, are we willing to obey? And so I want to ask you, is there something in your spirit right now Where you're saying to yourself, I really hope he doesn't say, do this kind of obedience. Because if that's happening in you right now, I bet that's what the Holy Spirit is prompting you towards. If there's something where you're saying, I hope this isn't his closing application, maybe God is calling you to be obedient in that area. Beholding Jesus in his glory ought to equip us for obedience. The next thing it ought to do is it ought to sustain us. Jesus knows that he has just communicated to his disciples that they will take up their own crosses in following after him. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It's hard to live life in the valley, in the brokenness of sin and the effects of the fall. And part of what Jesus is doing in revealing his glory is he's giving them a foretaste of the kingdom that he will establish. This coming kingdom where we won't even need the sun because the radiance of God will illuminate the city for us. Jesus is giving them a taste because he knows they need to see a light at the end of the tunnel of what he's asking them to embark on. So God's glory sustains us in the midst of the valley. And the last thing that beholding Jesus will do for us is it will transform us. Because what we see is we need more than information. Peter had the correct information earlier in chapter 9. He correctly identified Jesus as the Christ. But what we need is Transformation, to be changed by beholding Jesus. And I always think in this context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I just want to read it for us. Paul is directly addressing this. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. who with unveiled faces contemplate behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit so paul is saying the life we have in jesus it's not like what moses had where he had to veil his face we are meant to behold God with unveiled face. We are meant to experience transformation coming before him, that the Holy Spirit would withdraw this covering over our heart, and with the eyes of our hearts, we would behold God in the fullness of his glory and thereby be changed. And thereby, we would become those whose faces are illumined, that other people might be blessed by seeing what God is doing in us. This is the transformation that God is looking to affect in his people. Our call as the church is to behold Jesus in an ongoing way. And a couple things to say about this, because you may be in here right now saying, I have been trying to behold God for I don't know how long. I had a moment in my past, or I'm waiting for that moment in my future, and I do not feel like I'm beholding him. And I want to say a couple things about that. One is that Peter, as he's writing about the transfiguration, so 2 Peter chapter 1, He's indicating we don't have to have been physically present at the transfiguration for it to have been significant to us. Starting in verse 15, he writes, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So Peter is saying, hey, I'm nearing the end of my life. I want to set down a record of what happened so that you can be encouraged in your ongoing life with God. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. He's talking about the transfiguration. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The reason I'm putting this verse before you is Peter, talking to this audience of people, he doesn't tell them, I can't wait for you to have your own transfiguration. He says, my testimony is sufficient for you. I was an eyewitness to what I beheld and I want you to know that this is true. So Peter conceives that we don't need to be chasing sin places. And this is really significant because I think we can get stuck in a backwards facing view of our faith. We can remember these moments in which God revealed his glory to us and we can start to think that's the only place at which I can have communion with God is in a thin place, is in a place where I've drawn away. And I do think those moments are important. I think they play a big role in sustaining our faith, but I also think that if you are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, meaning you have been reborn in Christ, you have all the tools you need to behold the glory of the Lord. He takes away the veil of our hearts, and oftentimes he does it in the air quotes, boring, mundane aspects of being a Christian. In the Sunday gathering, in the singing of songs, in the preaching of the word, and feasting at the Lord's table, in confessing sins to brothers and sisters and being reminded that we have been forgiven in Christ, in daily prayer and Bible reading. These are the places where the glory of the Lord can shine through by the Holy Spirit, giving us eyes to behold. And I say all that because for some of you in this room who feel discouraged, I want you to be reminded you have the tools, you have the power, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray in treating the Spirit for anybody who feels stuck, that they might experience the glory of the Lord. But even beyond that, I want you to also be encouraged by the conclusion of our story. So Jesus, he's with his disciples, they whiff it on the mountain, they miss his glory, and what he doesn't do, he doesn't turn to them and say, well, you guys go down that way, I'll be heading this way. He doesn't cut them loose. They're missing it doesn't mean that they stop following him. They continue following after Jesus, laboring and wrestling towards a fuller understanding of what it means to view Jesus as the Son of God. And so as an encouragement to you all, if you feel like you are in a place where I want to behold God, I want to experience obedience, I want to experience sustenance, I want to experience transformation, my plea to you would be don't give up in following. The disciples were in the same place and yet they followed after Jesus, eventually becoming illumined to those realities. Friends, hear the good news. The good news is that Jesus did not leave us in our sin. The one who was fully God and fully man came that he might accomplish an exodus for us. And we are invited to behold his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you now. God, I pray on behalf of those in this room who are hearing what I'm saying about beholding you and they are thinking to themselves, I would want nothing more but I'm not feeling it. I don't feel like I'm seeing you, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that in the words of Paul that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, as he says in his letter to the Ephesians. I pray that they would behold you, God, and therefore be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We know that you are powerful enough to make this happen, so we ask you for it. God, for anyone in this room who, as they think about the transfiguration, thinks back on a previous season of life, where they're thinking to themselves, I know at one point in time, Jesus was captivating to me, but I feel dry. I pray that in our ongoing pursuit of you, that we would indeed experience your glory through the everyday pursuit of daily Bible reading and prayer and weekly worship, all these things. Holy Spirit, would you give us new eyes? We cast ourselves upon your mercy, recognizing that we do not have the power to do these things apart from you. And so God, we ask And Lord, I thank you for the witness and the testimony of the disciples that even if we leave today feeling like, "Ah, I want to behold the glory of the Lord, but I haven't seen it like I want to, we can continue to follow you. We can continue to ask. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask reliantly upon you. Jesus, we ask in your name, amen.
0: We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face towards you and give you peace.